morning, everybody. I love those little text messages going on the screen. Good to see you. My name is Gary, and I've been on staff here for a while, and one of the staff here. But more importantly, this life, this congregation has formed my life and the wife, my wife and my daughters. I have a vision, though. When our middle schoolers leave, I want to start something. Can we just go nuts and cheer for them uh, as they leave, in addition to giving them high fives? Because theirs is a world where uh, really not a lot of people are cheering for middle schoolers. I want this place to be different. So next week, if this is your regular gathering, let's just go nuts and cheer for them. We good with that? Very good. Awesome. Hey, I have a question for you in this series on questions Jesus asked. My question is this. What, in your opinion should be the distinctive of followers of Christ. Uh, You actually have a text box in your message notes there. You can answer that. What, in your opinion, should be the distinctive of Christians and followers of Christ? That question was actually asked in a huge research project and was chronicled in a book called Unchristian. In this research project, they uh, interviewed thousands of people from the age of 16 to 29, and they asked, what do you think? And all these people had one thing in common. They were not churched. And so they were asking outsiders, what is your opinion of followers of Christ? Age 16 to 29, largest research project done in the last 20 years. Uh, This is a great book to get. I want you to see the answers that came out. Watch this. Christians are old-fashioned. Hypocritical. Anti-gay. Live in a bubble. Too involved in politics. Uh, They believe that they're fake. Phony. Uh, Talk out of both sides of their face. Uh, Have a list of rules and regulations that they have to follow all the time, and they're definitely not fun. Christians always have ulterior motives. So a lot of my friends, when they think about Christians, they think about people who have no clue, really. Uh, They live in a world that's not real. They're just kind of their own little existence, doing their own little thing. Um, And they are hypocritical. You know, some of them, again, we say certain things, we don't follow it up. People assume that you're coming from this closed-minded worldview. My non-Christian friends think that I am always judging them, that I think that I'm better than them. They assume that Christians don't like gay people. I feel like we're just in a place right now where we have to surprise people and challenge their assumptions about what Christianity is because the assumptions that people have about Christianity are so firm at this point that they can actually parody us with pretty good accuracy. Pretty sad. The study was commissioned by followers of Christ in a research group called the Barna Group. I'd really recommend this book, or at least Google the book and just get the summary of it. Here's the bottom line. The people outside of the church feel like they have some sense of what church people should be like based on some knowledge of Jesus, and their premise is this, that the followers of Jesus, the Christians, are actually acting unchristian. This isn't what we thought this would be. Now, come back with me, and somehow I think that wasn't what Jesus had in mind when he commissioned his church. And I think those views are actually um, increased here in the peninsula, much more so. I love a guy named Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. He said this, uh, and many things he said, but one of his teachings was, it's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. When this distinctive that I think should mark the church, and Jesus thought should mark the church, is modeled, you know what happens? The world takes notice. They're actually hijacked by it. Uh, Last summer, I was watching an interview, because I am a Raider fan. Any other Raider fans in here? 
Good. Be loud. Be proud. There's one nation, right? The Raider Nation. Okay, good. We don't have any Denver Bronco fans in here, do we? Okay, good. Um, That's not good. Anyway, uh, we won't go there. Um, Derek Carr, quarterback of the Denver Broncos and passionate follower of Jesus Christ, this summer signed as quarterback the richest contract in NFL history. He is the highest paid player. He makes $25 million a year, just like me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, And they asked him in an interview, this was in the Merck, this was in Sports Illustrated across the country, what are you going to do? You're the highest paid player in the world. And he said this, nothing different. What do you mean nothing different? He said, okay, I'm going to go out to lunch today at Chick-fil-A. And like, what? What else? Come on. He goes, actually, I'm going to do what I've been doing my whole life. Here's what he said. I'm going to tithe. See, when I was at Fresno State on scholarship, I got my scholarship check. I tithed off that. And now the world is going to be better because I make $25 million a year. He was excited about that. And people didn't have a category for it because this distinctive trait was being modeled for the world by the followers of Christ. I think about, I don't have to look at Derek Carr, I can just look around here. The great ones that have built this church for six decades, I'm looking at many of you, model this trait week in and week out. Tony talked about PCC Hudson, our plant. We have one woman, she's a professional. You know what her job is? No one knows this. She comes early to set up at Hudson, it's a grammar school. You know what she does? She gets Clorox wipes and she cleans the toilets every week. Doesn't complain. Uh, And as passionate as some of you were here worshiping to this music, she's that passionate as an act of worship, cleaning the toilets. No one sees it. There's people that pray around here. There's people that set up. There's people that tear down. There's a memorial team that uh, runs um, parties over there and memorials and brings food in week in, week out when we have a death around here. And no one knows because this church has been built around this distinctive The distinctive Jesus modeled and intended to mark every one of his followers. Greatness in God's eyes is this word, humility. Humility. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, let's look at this. Or you can turn on your Bibles to the version app. Mark chapter 9, and let's look at this humility um, value and how it came about. Jesus is stepping into an argument when we get there with his disciples. He's not in an argument. They're arguing, and Jesus is talking to them about it. And that argument gives Jesus the opportunity to raise the question. Now, around this series, we're talking about Jesus asked over 300 questions are recorded in the, in the Gospels, over 300. He was asked 189 questions in the Gospels, and he only answered three of them. Jesus was not just the Bible answer man, he was the great questioner. Because life is found in the questions of Jesus. And every question brings out one of his values, including this one. So let me give you the context. Are you in Mark 9? You there? Okay, the context, if you look at the top of the chapter, um, it starts with the transfiguration. Literally, heaven comes to earth. And Jesus takes only three of his disciples. How many apostles did Jesus have? Twelve. And he takes three of them and he has these uh, most intimate moments with his three. They were his closest followers. So he takes these three, Peter, James, and John, up on the hill and heaven comes down. Jesus is transfigured to his pre-earthly state. You want to know what Jesus looked like? Read Mark 9. You want to know what he looks like now? Read Revelation chapter 1. You see a picture. They're very aligned. 
So he gets, he gets glorified, it's called. Uh, Moses and Elijah come down, and here's Peter, James, and John watching this. Now, while this is happening, if you read on in Mark 9, down in the valley below, the other nine disciples are battling out in the spiritual realm with a kid who's demonized. He's filled with a demon, and they can't do anything about it. So do you see the two pictures and the differences? The three are experiencing Moses, Jesus, and Elijah. The nine are battling it out with a demon, and they're not winning. And so they come down, they come back together. If you keep reading in Mark chapter 9, and Jesus uh, exercises the demon out of the kid. And rather than marveling over the greatness of Jesus, now both groups have an opportunity to marvel at Jesus' greatness. On the mountain, obviously, they see him in his glorified state. Down in the valley, they see him. They couldn't do it for days. Jesus just gives the word, and the demon comes out. They both should be in awe of Jesus. What are they arguing about? Who's greater amongst themselves? Does anyone see the irony in this? Okay, maybe it's just me, but I'll build that out and we'll get there, okay? You can just imagine Peter coming down, he's on the mountain, and he's like, why couldn't you get rid of that demon, Andrew? That was an easy one. And Andrew's like, well, where were you? He's like, I was up on the mountain hanging out with Moses and Elijah. Why weren't you there? Oh, yeah, you weren't invited. Only I was invited on that one. And these guys are constantly jockeying the whole gospels for position in Jesus' cabinet, if you will. And I'll build that out in a little bit. Okay, do you know the context? Do you see the tension that could be built? Does anyone else struggle with status or tension with other people when you see others promoted or others demoted? Am I the only sick person in here? Okay. <laughs> Page two, let's jump in. The road trip. Jesus says, come on, we're going on a road trip. Where's this road trip heading? We are at a pivot point in the book of Mark. Jesus is in the northern part area of Israel. He's just heading south with his men straight on a death march. He's going to Jerusalem. And the rest of the gospel, the book of Mark, there's no more public teaching, no more sermons on the mount, no more anything public. It's just him and his disciples. So he's going on a road trip. They have no idea where this road trip is headed, but Jesus does. Verse 30, they left the place, they passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, now he's going to let them in on this. They've not heard this aspect of following the Messiah till this point. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now we read that and just go, of course. They had never heard that. All the prophecies in the Old Testament talked about a political Messiah who was going to conquer, and that's who they were following. They were thinking, finally, we are going to be out from under Rome's rule, and you're the man that's going to do it. And Jesus says, oh, let me just tell you what's going to happen here. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. In the Roman Empire, there were three ways to kill a capital, a man, mainly men. A few women were crucified, but mainly men who committed a capital offense. You got decapitated, you got burned alive, or you were put on a cross. And by far, the most gruesome, painful, shameful way was crucifixion. Uh, they, would, they would strip a man, and they'd take him as close to the point of death as possible and leave him there as long as possible. 
Now you add to that the religious stigma for Jewish people. If you're taking notes in the book of Deuteronomy, it's an Old Testament book, chapter 21, verse 22 to 23 said this, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. So for the Jews, which all these followers were, Jesus was Jewish. They're going, I don't get this. This is beyond me. How can you be our Messiah and end up like that and have the cursed stigma? We want a political Messiah, not that kind of Messiah, right? It was this thought of political Messiah that caused them to argue. They argued the whole life of Jesus. At one point, two of their disciples pulled their mom into the argument, James and John. And there's a scene in the book of Luke where James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, can my sons have a good cabinet seat in your regime? Going into the Last Supper, the Bible says they're climbing up and the disciples walking into the Last Supper. You know what they're doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. This doesn't end for these people. And the whole point for Jesus in reframing this, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, is this. This is such good news, everybody. Yes, cursed is everybody who hangs on the tree. It's the whole reason I came. I came to take the curse you deserve. And I will come back and be that political Messiah. My kingdom's coming, and you will see the manifestation of it. As followers of Christ, we're still waiting for that. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you, Renee, and everybody else. Yes, we're still waiting for that. We are to pray Maranatha, which is a word that means come, Lord Jesus. But Jesus says this first time, I'm going to get a curse so that you can be free, and I can give you life. I take the curse, you get the life. Now that deserves an amen, right? That's why it's gospel. It's why it's good news. So between 32 and 33, if you mark up your Bibles, I hope you do, there's a gap of time and space. There's 30 miles between verse 32 and 33. How long does it take you to walk 30 miles? I've never done it, so I don't know. But that's how long has gotten that taken place between now and then. They enter a village called Capernaum where Jesus uh, centered his ministry on. He heads to a house. And we get, bottom of page two, the question. Okay, here we go. They come to Capernaum. Remember, the road trip, 20 to 30 miles. They're arguing the whole time. I'm better. No, I'm better. I got to go up in the mountain. Well, I don't know why I don't, but I'm better. And, and then they come in. They come in. Jesus goes into a house. Could have been Peter's house. It was his hometown. And then when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about as you were on the road? Anyone ever been busted for arguing? How many of you argued last week? How many of you argued on the way to church? Awesome. My wife was in the 905, and uh, yeah, just be careful if you ever become a preacher. Be careful of the topics, because God will just rake you over the coals. And we had conflict, oh, so much conflict yesterday. And so I sat down, and she's, I'm like, well, how was it? We'll talk when we get home. I'm like, ah, good, awesome. Pray for me. No, she's great. Okay. What are you arguing about? Look at verse 34. They kept quiet. Because on the way they argued about who was what? Greatest. Write this word in your Bible or in your notes, definitely, because this is the, uh, fuels these kind of arguments, and we, we face this all the time. Status. Status. That's what they're arguing about. They're looking for status. They want to be great in the world's eyes or great in someone else's eyes. And I would say 100% of my conflict, including the conflict yesterday, 
happens when somehow my status isn't recognized like I think it should be. Everyone wants to be a servant until they're treated like a servant, right? Uh, so uh, they go silent, both because of the question and who's asking it. I, I, I remember where I was putting this message together downtown, and I wrote, how is it they spent years with the greatest, humblest human ever? How was it they saw Jesus in his glorified state or saw him just speak the word and release a demon that they couldn't release, and they're arguing about who's the greatest? Give me a break. And even as I typed that in to my keyboard, the Holy Spirit said to me, and I put it right in my notes, how is it, Gary, you worship the same being and have for over 30 years, and you're still so concerned about your status? Why, as followers of Christ, are we still arguing over greatness in worldly eyes, in status, and recognition, and territory. Why is it? Now, I want you to notice something obvious, and this is really important to this message and to the life of Jesus. Jesus doesn't get angry at their argument. He doesn't shut it down, but what he does do is realign it. I want you to hear this, because you won't hear this in a lot of churches. I don't know that I've ever heard this. Jesus is not down on greatness. Uh, I actually took out, because I don't have the time, like a hundred verses walking you through the value of greatness in God's eyes. Jesus is for greatness. It's used 95 times, that word, great, greatness, in the Gospels. It's used almost 900 times in the Bible. Following Jesus, I'm just going to be straight, gives us no excuse for mediocrity at all. But what he's going to do is realign greatness. Most of our culture defines greatness as cultural greatness, status in worldly eyes. The difference is, as followers of Christ, we're concerned about eternal greatness, that our lives would point to greatness in God's eyes and make his fame and his renown known, just like Derek Carr did in that interview, right? Pointing our very lives to how great God is. So important. He simply redefines greatness for us. Jesus defines everything. Look at this passage in the Gospels in John 14. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. As a matter of fact, they're going to do even, because I care about greatness so much, you're going to do greater things than me because I'm going to the Father. But here's what you need to hold that definition of greatness with. In Psalm 115, verse 1, it says this, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Because of your love and because of your faithfulness, I want my one and only life to point to you. That's what we are to be with our lives. That's why we want greatness, so we can get attention through our character and point people to God. And I would just tell you in a post-Christian context like we have on the peninsula, your life speaks so much louder than your words. And when we have the character of Christ, Francis was right, when our preaching, our walking is our preaching, it's how people get notice and take notice. And then we give words to point them to the Savior. Amen?
Look at the top of page three. Then we get to the object lesson. Jesus isn't done. He goes into a TED talk. He brings in an object lesson. And in one sentence, Jesus unveils uh, one of the most counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, pervasive and powerful distinctives for his followers. It's the very thing that our culture has lost when they look at us, as marked by that extensive research study in the book, Unchristian. I love this, verse 35, sitting down. Now that's, first of all, fantastic. He's gonna talk about humility and he's good on their level. I just picture Jesus kind of doing this with, with, with his followers. Getting on their level or below it. Not like taking the power position. He says, I want to tell you something. Sitting down, he calls the 12 and he says, anyone, here's his definition, who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Then he takes a little child. Remember last week, do you see me? I mean, the flood of name tags we put on there and the way we label people. I picture Jesus getting a label. Like, could it be this one? Greatest, the label greatest. And pulls a kid in and slaps it on the kid. And he says this next line. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever wants to become like one of these little children, I'm sorry, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name, welcomes me and whoever welcomes me doesn't only welcome me but they welcome the one who sent me now there's four gospel accounts so luke another gospel writer talks about this story and he adds a critical verse and if you're taking notes it's not in here but the luke chapter 9 verse 48 he says this that jesus said for it is the one who is the least among you all who is the greatest. Wow. Jesus takes something so amazingly countercultural. In that day, kids were just throwaways. The infant mortality rate in the Roman Empire in the first century, you ready for this? 50% of kids born only made it to their 12th year. 50%. They were throwaways. It was all in the power of the adult male. It's called a pater familias. The father had all the rights. If he didn't like a kid in any way, out he went. And so Jesus takes this discarded individual as a throwaway and says, you want to see my definition? Are you arguing about who's the greatest? I've got a name tag, greatest. Let me show you who's the greatest. And he puts it on the kid. So there's traits here that if you exhibit, you will know you are greatest in God's eyes. By the way, today, we still have this innate cultural disposition, the same one towards kids. We look at kids as a, as a discomfort at best or such a drag on us at worst. Uh, Friday night, I was at dinner. Uh, we just had our daughter, our youngest daughter. I've got five daughters. And uh, we were having dinner, and we had a conversation. And the guy said, oh, you got a daughter? I'm like, actually, we have more. He said, how many kids do you have? I, got, I said, I have five five kids. Oh my gosh. I'm like, oh, here we go again. Stop. You know, even in the church, people tell me, do you know how many weddings that is? I just want to go, what good does that do? <laughs> take out your wallet, take out your push pay. If you're going to make a comment like that and start contributing, <laughs> help feed needy children, mine. <laughs> and actually I do 
know what that costs. According to Time Magazine this fall, here's what it costs. Let's put it up. Birth to 18 for a kid today. Christy, we have a pregnant woman. Do any moment, right? When are you doing? Any moment. Awesome. Love that, Christy. And start saving your pennies. We got to reorient that in our culture. We got to set an awakening through our community. And that's what this God's heart for the world offering is all about. Kids aren't a burden. They're a blessing. We value kids. We want safe places for kids. We want them to become everything God created them to be. And that's what we're all about, right? So Jesus says, in bringing the kid on his lap, I want to turn the status structure upside down when it comes to greatness. And in my little TED talk, I'm going to use this object lesson as what that looks like. And he talks about children. And he talks about humility. Now, what is humility? We defined it here on the bottom of page two. Humility is serving others for God's glory without concern for our own status. Look at that, the bottom of page two. Look at your notes. Serving others for God's glory without concern for our status. And most of us sitting in the pew, myself included, go, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I want to do that until I have to. And then I keep going innately, what about my status? What about my rights? What about this? And God reminds me, oh yeah, you serve a man who lost all his rights when he came to earth, gave them all up and was crucified. That's what your life's supposed to be like. And look how it worked for Jesus. 2,000 years later, a third of the known world is worshiping that God because he gave up his status and rights. Think of the power we could have as a church. Uh, Humility isn't putting ourselves down. Rather, it's glorifying God and lifting others up. That's humility. Let's look how it worked for Jesus. Look at Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Look at Matthew. Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority, keywords, over them, right? Next verse, Jesus said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, there's the word again, and then he uses this word must. The word means it is necessary. You can't live without it. You want to be great? I've just told you it's not an option not to be. You want to be great in God's eyes? You must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So important, men and women, to recapture this distinctive. How do we do it? Quickly, on page three, we're going to motor through these. Um, And this isn't like three happy steps, but I want to invite you to do this as a lifestyle. And then here's the good news. Everyone look at me before you look at page three. I promise you, I promise you, based on God's word and his character, God will give you what you can't get on your own. He will give you what you can't get on your own. He's a gracious, good God. Start with this, worship. Worship. Worship is saying this to God. You're worth it. It's worth it. Every time I clean a toilet and no one notices, it's worth it because you notice. And I'm becoming more like the character of Christ. Uh, And I'm not just talking about worship when Tabitha's behind the piano leading us like she did this morning. I'm talking about on a daily, regular basis, you worship Jesus. 
I'm old school. I have Pandora. Anyone else have Pandora? You guys? Okay. I'll Spotify people. But uh, I'm Pandora, and I have a Lauren Daigle station. Every morning I wake up, I am in the worst mood, and I claw my way to an area of my house, and I hit my Pandora. Lauren Daigle is my current station. She's a worship artist, and worship happens, and I get converted in the morning, and I'm like, okay. I, what I do is I reorient my life to eternity. Oh, yeah, it's not about me. Yeah, these worries, you're bigger than those. Yeah. And I just worship God. And I'll tell you what, coming out of that time, I am a different man. Worship, word, prayer, it makes a difference. Do it every day, men and women. Every day it'll change your life. Look what it says. And we all with unveiled faces, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, that's worship. We are being transformed into his image. Put it in your day, throughout your day. Seeing worship to God. If I don't feel like it, that was never an excuse in the scripture. As a matter of fact, the psalmist talked to his soul when he didn't feel like it. It's like, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that's within me. He's commanding it. Bless his name. That will lead to confession. Confession is just seeing yourself in light of who God is. I fall so short, God. Forgive me. And God's like, Absolutely. When you see who I am, of course you're going to confess. And of course I'm going to forgive you. Look at this verse. These are the ones I look on with favor. Who wants the favor of God on their life? Me too. Okay, here Isaiah's telling us. Those who are humble, there's our value. Contrite, that's confession. In spirit, and who, I love this, tremble at my word. And then that will lead to service. You come out of that and you'll be like, God, you have divine appointments for me today. How can I live a life in such a way that's great in your eyes that my humility and my service points people to you? And we already read that passage. So I have application for you as we wrap this up. And worship band, come on up. I want to invite you to practice here this trait. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Before you leave, I'm going to invite you to do one act of humble service before you leave the campus. It could be just going up and shaking a hand. Just something outside yourself. I, I see it could be as simple, here's a piece of garbage, and just on the way out, you pick it up and walk away. I'm not asking you to, you know, cut down a tree or, you know, repave the parking lot. I'm just asking you to do one simple act of service before you leave this campus. And then, before you go to bed tonight, do another one. Do another one. You start practicing how good it is to live in humility. You start asking God, let go of my status. I want your status to be more important than my status. You know what? You're going to see a life that's used significantly in God's eyes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And God, I'm not asking that we try harder. That's, that's not anything that's good. I'm asking we trust more. I'm asking that today you would take the application, whatever it was throughout this whole message, and that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers. And Father, I'm so sorry what we've done as your church with your reputation in our community. I pray it'd be different here on the peninsula as we are passionate about following you. And I do wanna say as we're about to sing, you're worth it. You're so worth it. It's so worth it that we came together today. So we pray for divine appointments, for other focus in our worship on you and others. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name.
listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.